learning to ask better questions mm-hmm. and to lead with curiosity and inquiry leads you to both innovation, but also the personal experience of, I don't know the answer. And that as a leader becomes, I think, an incredibly powerful tool to model for the team. You're listening to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast with professional speaker, coach, and consultant, Nicole Greer. Welcome, everybody, to the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. My name is Nicole Greer, and they call me the Vibrant Coach, and I am here with Everett Harper. He is the CEO and co-founder of Trust, a human-centered software development company named as an Inc. 5000 fastest-growing private company for 2020 and 2021. He is a rare combination of a Black entrepreneur, Silicon Valley pedigree, national champion, for soccer and a proven record for solving complex problems with social impact. I am so lucky to have him on the show. He has had the foresight to build a company that has been remote first since 2011. He didn't even have to go through that learning curve. Mm -hmm. And he is all about salary transparency since 2017 and anticipating the importance of hybrid work and diversity, equity, and inclusion by a decade. Before trust. Everett was a Linden Lab maker of Second Life, a pioneering virtual world and Bain and Company management consultants. Though both his parents had pioneering careers as software programmers for IBM, Everett is the first in his family to attend college. That's amazing. As an AB Duke scholar at Duke University, go North Carolina, while majoring in biomedical and electrical engineering at Duke, he was also won the NCAA National Championship championship in soccer. There it is. He was inducted into the North Carolina Soccer Hall of Fame in 2019 and graduated with an MBA in learning design technology from Stanford University. Welcome to the show, Everett. I could go on. There's like three more paragraphs. You're, what? Do you sleep? Uh, no, I actually read that you have insomnia. The guy doesn't sleep. He wins soccer awards and he went to Duke. What the heck? You're amazing. Uh, well, thanks. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see if people <laughs> think that at the end of the, the podcast. So, um, And I will uh, make one update. Um, we just got the news. Yeah. Uh, we started this was uh, we made the Inc. 5000 um, fastest growing again this year. So for 2000. Uh, 22. So we've been there for three years in a row, which has been really cool. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Right. So here's here's the first lesson on this podcast. Hard work pays off. Is that correct, Everett? Would that what you would say you uh, attribute your success to? Have you all been working hard? (laughs) Um, I would say certainly we've been working hard. And I would also add that hard work and recovery are the secret of success because as famous athletes who sleep a lot and who understand you need your muscles to recover, um, same is true for work. Um, you can work really hard um, up into a certain point and then you have to recover so you can get back to it the, the next day or the next week. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. So what do you do to recover? Do you do the sleep? Do you get on an island? What is the thing that you do to recover? How do you take care of Everett? Yeah. So I think first is setting up constraints and expectations like, okay, we set up an expectation that we do plus or minus 40 hours a week. Sometimes you surge, but I think A is setting that constraint. B is when I stop work, I try and stop work. So when my daughter was little, I was really clear about when breakfast came, when she got up, it's, it's, uh, it's daughter time. 
until she goes to school. And then I can hit it hard the rest of the day. But when she comes home until she goes to bed, it's kid time. And so that constraint actually helps me make better choices about what to work on hard. So that's the second thing. And it also allows for recovery. I get new stimulation from figuring out what to cook my, uh, what to cook with my daughter, you know? Um, and now she's 16. So uh, she gets to do it on her own, which is good fun too. Um, and I think the longer yeah. term thing is things like sleep and exercise and people on this podcast know this, but making a practice out of it is the hard part, at least for me, um, because there's always an opportunity to do something different or do something new. And sometimes you just got to put the pen down. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you talk about habits in this book right here. So everybody, he's got a book called Move to the Edge, Declare It Center. And it has got a five-star review on Amazon. And I have been reading it. I didn't get through the whole thing, full disclosure, Everett, but I, I got pretty far. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it, You have to slow down, though. Like this, this is this is like really good, solid information. I, I nerded out a little bit. My inner researcher was like, mm, this is delicious. Um, so <laughs> I, I'd like to talk about your book a little bit, but I, I am collecting definitions of leadership because I think it's such a big conversation to have. So how would you define leadership? Mm. It's not going to be a complete definition because I think there are different definitions that work in different contexts. But the one for me that's resonating is the ability to create a space for other humans to show their best work and to do their best work and to direct people's attention towards the most important and highest leverage activities. Good leader does those things. I love it. That's fantastic. Yes. So I couldn't agree more. It's about, you know, you got to get the followers taken care of and get them where they need to be you know mm-hmm. i love the old saying i know you've heard this one you know like if you think you're leading you turn around nobody's following you've got a big problem with your leadership yeah, so, yeah absolutely okay well i we talked you know hey everybody we talked for a few seconds before we got started here and so we decided we would kind of talk about the book today so tell me about the title it's a cool title first of all <laughs> move to the edge and declare it center everybody think about that in your little brain for a second that's Cool. Tell me how you got that title. I got the title from a Andy Warhol documentary. And the art critic was describing how Andy Warhol became well known doing pop art when the entire art ethos in New York in the early 60s was abstract expressionism. He couldn't get a gig in New York. His first gig was in LA. He came back and he said, okay, I am going to double down, I'm going to say the art world is going this way, pop art, and I'm going to create a center. I'm going to buy the factory and I'm going to show people and I'm going to make everybody else respond to me. And the critic said he moved to the edge, the edge of what the art world was, and then declared it center and then had everybody respond. And I really like that idea because Mm -hmm. it's a lot of what we were trying to do at my company trust where we were trying to influence large Fortune 100 companies and government agencies to adopt a new way of doing software, agile development, human-centered, values-driven software. And we felt like if we could demonstrate that it worked, then people would declare it center and move their organizations and their processes towards that outcome. 
and it's worked. Um, we had an opportunity to do that with healthcare.gov, and we've been able to do it with some of our largest clients, including um, the Department of Defense Transcom, which is moving almost half a million service members every year, and we're building a product using that ethos. And so uh, that's that's sort of a little bit behind it. One other coda, I didn't realize when I named it the book, we named the book this, but Toni Morrison, the author, has a quote from one of her speeches that talked about how she moved to the edge and waited for the world to come and center around some of the things that she had, was writing about and doing. And it's a wonderful richness that, wow, I didn't even know that Toni Morrison was talking about the same thing. And so it feels like it has some richness and some some legs uh, still to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, this is definitely like thought leadership, right? Like, so if somebody moves to the edge and declares it center, I mean, like, I'm just thinking, oh, that's somebody really exercising thought leadership right there. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. It's um, trying to, in many ways, I mean, in the book, I talk about moving to the edge. What it means is moving to the edge of your knowledge or your practices mm-hmm. or your certainty. And then developing systems, declaring the centers, developing systems to take those new thoughts and innovations and ideas and create an infrastructure so that they can be shared with the rest of the company or the organization. And so what I hope is it goes beyond a thought leader in that I may think of all these things, but I have to be pragmatic and enable others to take it up, to play with it, to give me feedback and then to use it so the idea spreads. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So, you know, uh, we talked, like I said, before we got started, and one of the things that is in your book that I think is so great is is that you have this uh, concept of how to make good decisions. It had a great mm. story in there about your your dad and what you guys had to do. And, you know, the, the subtitle is Practices and Processes for Creatively Solving Complex Problems. And I think one of the key things for solving problems is you're going to have to decide. That's right. What are we going to do? Right? right. Okay. So talk to us a little bit because I, I know all of us out there are like, oh my gosh, if I could make awesome decisions, that would really help me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll do a, a slight preamble. Most of, how many of us were taught to give the right answer? You put your hand up, you say it in class, you say it fast, you say it loud, whatever it happens to be. The nature of the problems we're overcoming now and we're dealing with now, now in my view, the most important ones, is there a right answer to climate change? Is there a right answer to a livable city? Is there a right answer to how do you prevent forest fires? There's so many complex problems and that simple notion of the right answer flies in the face of what we are challenged by now. Learning to ask better questions mm-hmm. and to lead with curiosity and inquiry leads you to both innovation, but also the personal experience of, I don't know the answer. And that as a leader becomes, I think, an incredibly powerful tool to model for the team. I don't know the answer. Will you follow me anyway? Creating space for other people not to know the answer and then contribute to what the answer might be. Um, so I think that's a really important part of the book that I'm trying to, trying to convey. So how does this relate to making decisions? None of us have the complete picture. We all have blind spots. So how do you fill in the blind spots? That's where it gets into creating diverse teams. How do we make decisions when we don't have all the information? Even with a diverse team, even with intelligent people, 
So there's a framework that we use around, it's based on you know, social psychology and so forth, but the simplest version is, if you have something that's of high consequence, or sorry, low consequence and low effort, make it an experiment. Delegate it, see what happens, try something, it could be wrong, that's okay. You will learn something. If it's, if it's a high consequence problem and little effort, you probably want to figure, you probably want to manage that a little bit more tightly. And so we go through these quadrants, but the one that is the most interesting is when it's high consequence and you want to figure it's, and you have to make the decision quickly. In other words, the risk associated with making that decision is increasing. That's where it gets interesting. So here's the example I tell in the book. My dad died of stomach cancer. And when um, he first got it, they had the decision to make of whether to take out his stomach. Now, that's a high consequence decision, but there was time before we had to make the decision about whether to do the operation or not. So what do we do? We became experts. We did all this research and we looked at all these different things. We I bet. Really I bet you did. Invented, we really went deep. But that was the smart call because once you make that decision, you have to figure things. There's no going back. And we had time to make it. Contrast that with a forest fire. If there's a forest fire coming over the hill, you don't do a lot of research. You get out. That's <laughs> right. Where's the have, dog? Yeah, right. Where's the dog? Where's my stuff? And go. Right. That is very much a part of decision-making that you can apply to decisions. Sometimes we react, so I certainly talk for myself. I've reacted to situations and tried to make a decision too quickly without realizing, wait a minute, does the risk change now or later? If it's later, invest in becoming an expert. If it's now, do the best you can, mitigate the risk and, and act in move. Um, okay. And that's sort of a, a short version of the framework that I try and uh, uh, illuminate, but it's really one of many practices about how to move and make decisions when you don't have full information, and you don't have uh, all the answers. Yeah. And you can find his diagram on page 18. I've got it dog-eared because I've been studying it. I'm like, this is really good. Um, so the type of decision that, that you're going to make, you can use his little diagram there to help you do that. And I know you leaders that are listening are like, okay, I'm buying the book. I got to get to page 18. I got to take a picture. I got to hang it on my wall so I can use this. Yeah. I think that's fantastic because I think one of the key things leaders do is make decisions. The better ones they make, the better it'll be for everybody. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I love that. And then, you know, one of the things that was in your bio and something that you just kind of really naturally said, as you said, you know, you, you want to surround yourself with people who, who have, um, you know, a diverse background and who are diverse, diversity of thought. So talk to me a little bit about what you're doing with DEI and how you're applying it in your work and how you might challenge our listeners to, you know, really dial in. I think I read in the book, you said, if DEI is simply a marketing effort yep. or something that HR is trying to do, it's not going to work. It needs to be really a business strategy. Did I get that right? Straight? Yeah. Down? Yeah. I think I think right. Part of it is right. Um, in order to do diversity, equity, inclusion, well, if it's a side project, then what happens to side projects when budgets get cut economy takes a turn, sales start to flatten. Side projects go out. Oh, I well, I'm a trainer. 
I mean, like most right. of my work is training. And the first right. thing that gets slashed is training. I'm like, no, no, no. This is when we need training. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, That's and right. I think people are look at DEI as training. Yeah. And right. so I think we should talk about that, too. Like, yeah, well, and, and there is DEI training, but DEI is not training. That's right. That's correct. And I think <laughs> yeah. it is the reason. I. So what I do when people ask, like, so how did you think about this? I said, what's the connection to your yeah. business model? What's the connection to your operations? Why are you doing this? There are lots of there's tons of data about great outcomes to having diverse boards, diverse leadership teams, diverse companies. That is now out of the bag is is unquestioned. However, for a leader out there, how does it reflect your business? Is it about recruiting more people? Is it about reaching your customers? It's a, is it about getting more insight and developing better products? Whatever it happens to be, be clear on it before you go into this. How we do it at Trust, we realize that we know we make better decisions when we have diverse teams on all different levels. To Part of our job with our clients is to solve complex problems with lots of unknowns. Isn't it better to have people with different perspectives on that, that we can then serve our clients better with that fuller perspective? So that was really clear for us. The third is it's part of our value. It's not a side project. I am personally involved. And as a leader, as a CEO, whether it's a team or leading an organization, if there isn't a commitment to that executive sponsorship and leadership, setting the tone about why this is important, people won't take it as seriously. And so it then becomes something HR does or marketing does. Without that support, it will probably not succeed. Yeah, uh, I tell this story often, but it, I think it bears repeating right now because I love what you're saying. Everett just said, I'm involved, okay? And he is, you know, I don't know. I, I bet his pyramid is upside down. He's serving up. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, I will go and I'll do trainings, Everett, and there'll be this one, like, you know, you know, little hungry person that's in the organization. They're delighted to be at training. And on a break, they'll come up and they'll say, is my boss going to get this training? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm like... No. And they're like, oh, (laughs) and it slays me and it happens all the time. So uh, I really love what you're saying. Um, And don't miss this. He graduated from Duke people right over here in my home, North Carolina, go Durham, North (laughs) Carolina. So, uh, you know, he's telling the truth right there. Absolutely. So, so you've incorporated that in your, in your company. So could you kind of maybe share some strategies or how, like, give us the to-dos of how to do that because yeah. I think people need to kind of understand how to do it effectively. I think the first is to be clear about what your goals are. One's goals are. <laughs> Two is to be clear and candid about how to get there. So if you're trying to build a company and you're not diverse in whatever manner, to say, okay, we want to set a goal of being in this level, at this level in a couple of years. And by the way, you measure this in years, not in quarters. This is hard work. It takes diligence if you're going to do it in an authentic way. It's years. I think once the once you kind of said, okay, here's how we're going to get there, it's learning. It's going out and asking, okay, what can I do? How can I do something? How can I do better? For example, um, if you're an all-male organization... And or mostly male organization, you're trying to increase the number of women on your leadership team. If you go out and say, I'm going to recruit lots of women, women are going to look at your 
homepage and your about me page, and they're going to see, nope, I don't see a single other person there. I don't really feel like being the first. A different approach is to say, okay, here's where we are. We have an all mostly male team and asking people, what can we do differently to create an environment where women are valued, et cetera, et cetera, and ask people, not for candidates, but for advice, for insight, for feedback. Here's our standard marketing uh, recruiting pitch. What do you think about it? And then going to conferences and showing up. This is another one of, of your leader. Don't send, um, it makes a bigger message when you go to, in this case, all women's uh, conference and you're there to learn. Leadership conference or something. Yeah, that's right. You're there to learn. I'm here to learn. I know I'm the only one. I'm sure I will feel really ignorant a lot of the time. Showing up and then asking really authentic questions starts to create that credibility. Now, when you reach out, having built those relationships, hey, I know what this person is doing. I know they show up. I know they ask for feedback. I know they've added value to our uh, conference. Here's a candidate that might be interesting for you. It's that relationship building, not transaction, that really starts to change the way that you think about and the impact that you can have in building a diverse culture. That takes time, but one has to learn and it takes time to learn. Yeah, and I bet if um, the male leader went to the women's leadership conference and then crazy thought uh, comes back and moves to the edge, declares mm-hmm. that the center and says, now, where are you all going? What conference will you be going to this year? Will you be going to the same conference you've gone to for the last 12 years right, <laughs> or, right, or right. will you do something that put, you know, cause really what you're saying is if we got to get, you know, the old, we got to get out of our comfort zone thing. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and you challenge your own team members to do the same. And yeah. um, it's a way of, of, we call it blameless postmortems. It's blameless learning. We're here to learn how to do things better. If we knew how to do it, we would have done it already. <laughs> um, right. How can we learn from people and develop relationships of credibility and trust. That's what that's about. Yeah. And and like, I know, you know, those of you who listen regularly, you know, I, I try to gather up like, you know, what are the skills do we need to work on as leaders? So what's our definition? We're, we're playing with that. And, you know, that's why I keep asking the question over and over of every guest, because, you know, I, I don't think I have the, the, the answer yet. I don't know if I'll right. ever have the answer. But the other thing I'm kind of gathering up is like, what are the skills? Um, that a leader needs to be super effective. And, and this is what you just said. Um, you said, you know, you got to be a relationship builder. Um, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. I kind of paraphrase that. Um, mm-hmm. And you've, you've, you've got to ask questions. Now, I want to tell you something. This thing about questions, um, I, I have coaching training. And the part of the coaching training that I got when I got my little certificate was that changed my life was this whole idea of asking questions. Uh-huh. Um, so can you talk a little bit more? Because you've said it twice, just mm-hmm. in this little space of time that asking questions is the is money. <laughs> so you talk yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a great Ted Lasso episode um, about. Oh my gosh! Everybody's watching this thing. If you look it up, if you look it up, uh, the dark scene, and I won't tell the whole story, but essentially, he the the key phrase is more inquiry, less certainty, Mm -hmm. and I think it really embodies this. It's starting with curiosity. 
Are you curious about the person across from you? Are you curious about your client? Are you curious about this business problem? Not from the standpoint of, I know the answer, I just need to solve it, but I'm curious about what is the nature of this problem? Are there different ways to address it? When you start there, then what follows is curiosity. Oh, how does this work? Oh, who else has this problem? Where else can I get perspective? Who can show me how this works? Kids are great at this, right? They're asking why all the time, oh, yeah. right? And so in a different context, the beginner's mindset is another way of framing it. You ask questions and you're open to information rather than trying to sort things and then make decisions quickly. There's a benefit to that. And the benefit is not only uh, I have better understanding, I am modeling it for my team. I'm saying simply by asking lots of questions, oh, he doesn't know the answer. Maybe I can ask more questions. And if I'm good at creating that environment that no matter what the answer is, even though answers that I don't like or disagree with, I'm appreciative of those different answers. Now I've got a team that feels a greater sense of psychological safety and they're able to bring their best work and best perspectives to mm -hmm. a decision. That's really where the sort of asking questions becomes even more powerful because now it spreads to the rest of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, I love what you're saying about questions and you know, that old thing, you know, knowledge is power and you get more knowledge if you ask more questions. So yeah, I, mean, I, just, I, I like to call them powerful questions. All right. So everybody go look at the dart scene. Um, and I'm going to say this again. He said uh, more inquiry, less certainty. That's right. I love that. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Okay. All right. So in the book, you talk about, you know, there's methods to move um, and then exterior practices and interior practices. I know that's like a lot of things that you have lots to share about, but we kind of dial that in for us a little bit. Sure. Exterior practices are those that you can use with your organization. Yeah. It's designed to, there are things like retrospectives, which are processes for reviewing and understanding both good things and bad things in a project. There are post-mortems, or sorry, pre-mortems, which is imagining sort of how, in the future how things are gonna go and then mitigate both the good and bad in that. So these are specific practices that enable someone to, um, to follow, and that can be used with an organization. Interior practices are saying, okay, you can have all the frameworks you want, but if you're not aligned with a sense of purpose or you're not able to be comfortable being uncomfortable, then you're going to apply these exterior practices in incorrect ways. So it's a place to start first from oneself and then be able to develop basically the habit of being able to make good decisions, even when you're uncomfortable, even when there's unknowns, even when there's uncertainty. The good news, you can practice all those things. So making it a practice doesn't now doesn't become a hero thing. You're not trying to be heroic. You're trying to make good decisions in a sustainable way under potentially high stress and high uncertainty. Interior practices helps the individual with that. Yeah. One of the, the uh, practices you have in the book is um, writing a letter to yourself. Yeah. Um, now, I have I have a mentor. Her name's Ann Sturette. And Every time she has a program at the end, she makes us write a letter to ourselves. And then she oh, sends really? it to us at some random time. <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. 
and uh, you get that letter in the mail and you're like, oh, yeah, I did say that to myself, didn't I? Yeah, I love it. But will you is that what will you explain how you use it? Because I think it's a fantastic way to build that interior. um, You know, this is what you're thinking. This is what you're doing. This gets you aligned with what your purpose is. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So it it relies on the principle that the psychologists call counterfactuals. Um, which is the, the way to imagine a scenario outside of what is expected for briefly said. And what a letter to yourself is, is applying that principle to making a decision often when you have two great choices or you have choices where you don't have enough information. Many people, including myself, often get stuck. Like, oh, I don't know what to do. What should I go? Well, this is a way to move forward. So essentially, Um, I'll give you the specific example. I was trying to decide between graduate schools, Michigan or Stanford, and I didn't know which to do. And so I got advice to write a letter to myself. Imagine yourself a year from now and not just what am I doing? It's where do I live? What's the scene like? Do I have friends? What kind of friends? How do I spend my free time? What am I studying? Just really paint that full picture. I am the protagonist in this novel, right? Yeah. And what happens is when you start writing that and pick one of the scenarios, right? So I picked Stanford, started writing and you feel like, oh, this isn't good. No, this, I don't want this future. Okay. Now you've, you've gotten some really good information. Maybe Michigan is the best call. So I was writing, I was feeling pretty excited about it. I could paint a vivid picture. And I was like, okay, yeah, I think I'm willing to do this. I'm really going to go forward. You close the letter up. You put it in some place you can find it. And in some amount of time, six months, nine months, one year, you open the letter, but don't open it beforehand. So what happened for me, I made that decision to go to Stanford and it was to go to graduate school uh, in organizational behavior. And it opened the letter and it was so close. It was, I was really happy. It was sunny. I was working hard. I liked what I was studying. But what was missing was I didn't really... I didn't, I wasn't fully committed to being a professor. And that was pretty critical in an academic environment. Yeah. And so what I realized was it helped me make a decision, Michigan versus Stanford, but it also helped me realize that when I made that decision, there was another factor that I hadn't considered. And now I got to address that issue. And so that's when I left to go to the MBA program instead. So writing a letter enables you to make a decision enables you to paint a vivid picture and also allows one to evaluate that decision based on the information you have. And that provides new learning. Sometimes you predicted correctly and other times you didn't, but that's learning too. And that's really the power of writing a letter yourself. There's all sorts of different variations. You can also do this with a team. It's called a pre-mortem. And it's really helpful because it helps you avoid problems and learning from the future to avoid problems now. Mm, That's fantastic. All right. Well, we are unfortunately at the end of our time, but I mean, Mm. like we only got like to chapter three. So Everett (laughs) has to come back and play with me some more another time. Uh, But here's what I want to do. I want to encourage everybody to go out uh, and buy Everett Harper's book. It's Move to the Edge, Declare It Center, Practices and Processes for Creatively Solving Complex Problems. And I bet you got three 12 complex problems that you probably need to solve. You can Uh, work on 
you can get his little diagram. You can work on your external practices and your internal practices. Um, maybe do some cool work around DEI. Learn to ask powerful questions. Um, I just think this could really help you. Um, so, uh, Everett, will will you will you tell everybody where they can find you and find your book? Sure. Uh, the book is on all the places. Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. Um, you can order it through, and I'm a big supporter of local bookstores, uh, Barnes and Noble as well. It's mm -hmm, on me too. print, uh, audio book and ebook. So whatever modality you like, uh, where you can find me, everyfarper.com. Uh, it's my other site. It has, you know, different stories. I'm going to be probably putting some interesting content on there in the, in the near future, uh, around turning some of the book into workbooks that people can do online. My company is trust.works. And we can learn how and see how we've turned a lot of these practices into this vibrant culture that's doing really important work uh, for our clients. And if you want to hire us or want to come join us as a company, there are ways to do that. We are always looking for great people. And then on uh, Instagram and Twitter, it's Everett Harper. So all my handles are the same. Uh, so yeah, hit me up anywhere. I love having conversations like this with anybody because you may be taking the same ideas and extending it far beyond whatever I thought. That's the point of this book to start conversations and hopefully contribute to helping people make better decisions. Mm. And I have absolutely loved having this conversation with you. And you know what, Everett, there's always one listener going, wait, 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 leave me one more nugget. Don't let them go without one more nugget. What's your last nugget you're going to leave with us? Last nugget to remember. Yeah. What's the thing? What's our call to action? What do you want us to do out here in the world? Yeah. I would say get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. You can practice that, but to get to the next level. And I bet you all the listeners here actually know this already. I'm just reminding you of what you actually know. Getting right. comfortable with being uncomfortable is the place where you really start to grow, really start to learn and model for others about how to do the same. Fantastic. All right. Thank you, Everett, for bringing Thank your you. genius on the Build a Vibrant Culture podcast. We loved it. Appreciate it. Ready to build your vibrant culture? Bring Nicole Greer to speak to your leadership team, conference, or organization to help them with her strategies, systems, and smarts to increase clarity, accountability, energy, and results. Your organization will get lit from within. Email Nicole at NicoleGreer.com. And be sure to check out Nicole's TEDx talk at NicoleGreer.com.